Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Ainsberg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Dainsburg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church located in Fall Lake, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm going to do something a little different today, a little history lesson. We're talking about, well, the title of this is Clergy and the American Revolution. And I'm going to talk through uh, actually large snippets of Dr. Gary Stewart's book called Justifying Revolution, the American Clergy's Argument for Political Resistance from 1750 to 1776. Um, Dr. Stewart is an associate professor of history and chair of the Department of Social Sciences in the College of Undergraduate Studies at Colorado Christian University. He's also adjunct faculty member at California Baptist University in Riverside. And uh, he's written this book, which actually I believe was originally his doctoral dissertation. And as oftentimes happens, they rework this to make it friendly for public consumption. And so he's written this book um, on the American clergy's argument for political resistance during the revolutionary period. So a little history lesson. There's some dense stuff in here because I'm reading passages from his book, but I think um, I think you'll find it helpful. Here's how he begins the book. He says, this book is written under the conviction that the American clergy who supported the American Revolution have been misunderstood. Modern historians have wondered what to make of the American clergy's arguments in this period for political resistance to the British. The majority of historians today, it seems, interpret the clergy's support of the American Revolution as an accommodation of Christian teaching to various forms of secular thought. They must have ignored the clear teaching of the Bible and closed their ears to the authority of Scripture to justify disobedience and armed warfare against the established political authorities. After all, doesn't Scripture condemn political resistance? Stewart goes on, Many historians have argued that the revolutionary era clergy developed their resistance doctrine on the basis of beliefs and philosophies that were sharp deviations from their inherited theological tradition. They synthesized Christian and secular notions together to create a distinct form of American religious thought. The clergy must have been co-opted, they argue, by radical political thought. Stewart writes, while such accommodations may have been made by some Americans in colonial society, it is my view that these historians are wrong to ascribe such philosophical shifts to the patriot clergy in general. This is not the best explanation for understanding the origin of their doctrine of political resistance. To properly understand the clergy's political ethics, one must reconstruct the historical and intellectual context that they lived in, starting with the context of their own theological tradition. Interpreters of the clergy must carefully note how they themselves understood their own views. A sympathetic reading of the clergy's arguments can help us put ourselves in their shoes and try to understand their position as they themselves would have understood it. So what, what he's saying is that there are some modern-day historians who believe the clergy of the American Revolution period were sellouts of sorts, bending and contorting their theology to accommodate a position that would support the, co the colony's resistance of the British. 
And Stewart's work seeks to show that the colonial clergy, at least those that he surveys, were more thoughtful and operate from a position of theological conviction over their positions. And they didn't arrive at these positions thoughtlessly or spinelessly. So what I want to do, this is why it's a little dense, is read some sections of text written either as initially published as sermons or pamphlets produced by five different colonial clergy who would have stood in a more theologically reformed tradition, which is where I am. And obviously these aren't the only five that Dr. Stewart um, surveys. He, he surveys numerous clergy. And uh, it'll just, it'll give you a flavor of how some of these pastors were processing the notion of political resistance to the British. Okay. So we're going to look at five of them. First is Jonathan Edwards, Jr. Now, probably most of you, if not all of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards. This is Jonathan Edwards, Jr. Like his father, uh, he was a Congregationalist minister. In 1775, he was serving a church in New Haven, Connecticut, and preached a sermon that gave detailed consideration of Romans 13 and political resistance. Romans 13 is the kind of the go-to passage that talks about submitting to governing authorities. And Stewart, in uh, working through Edwards Jr.'s um, sermon, and it's not the only piece of literature he looks at, but Stewart writes this, after considering the absolutist position, Edwards argues that Paul's intention in Romans 13 was only to, quote, give the general rules of obedience and submission, and not to touch on the question of whether resistance be justifiable or not, end quote. The answer to this question should instead be inferred from numerous instances in the Old and New Testaments, which Edwards listed as providing abundant support for the morality of political resistance in certain circumstances. While Edwards was convinced that arguments from natural reason might also shed light on the question of when such resistance might be morally justified, he restricted himself to explaining the Bible's teaching on the subject. After surveying a wide array of scriptural teaching relevant to this question, Edwards made his rejection of non-resistance and passive obedience doctrine explicit. Edwards Jr. writes this, The doctrines of passive obedience and non-resistance are not the doctrines of the Bible. Hope, therefore, that our text, Romans 13, will no more be quoted to prove and sustain the doctrines of divine, of, excuse me, of passive obedience and non-resistance, especially in times like these. The truth is, and the whole spirit of Scripture sustains it, and here's his key statement, that rulers are bound to rule in the fear of God and for the good of the people. And if they do not, then in resisting them, we are doing God's service. Edwards closed this particular sermon by urging his audience of Connecticut freemen to elect legislators who were, quote, hearty friends of the rights and liberties of their country and reject candidates who were advocates for the rights of the British Parliament to tax us, end quote. Jonathan Edwards Jr. Here's a second one, Jacob Green. I'll go through these and then I've got three reflections at the end, brief reflections to 
synthesize this. Jacob Green, uh, one of the, he's actually one of the first clergymen to publicly support the idea of American independence. And uh, he served as a longstanding Presbyterian pastor in Morristown, New Jersey. He was also interim president of the College of New Jersey in Princeton after the death of Jonathan Edwards, Sr. In 1776, Green published a pamphlet entitled Observations on the Reconciliation of Great Britain and the Colonies, in which he sought to remove objections to American independence and encourage the colonists to thoughtfully consider it. He published this piece because the choice between reconciliation or proper separation was much in the thoughts of Americans at this time. And he believed that both sides of that matter of reconciling or separation should be discussed openly. Now, Green himself favored American independence, though he argued it should be discussed dispassionately, quote, with calmness, temper, and sound reasoning. Green argued that Great Britain had forfeited its right to political submission and dependence when it failed to protect and defend the colonists' legal rights and liberties and instead turned against them as their enemy. Green said this, Suppose Britain herself should act the part of an enemy, refuses us the privileges which are ours by constitution, seize our properties and deprive us our mutual rights, in which case America expostulates, pleads, submits to all equitable impositions which are according to constitution, begs they may be relieved and not driven to extremities, but Britain proves deaf to our entreaties, seizes our properties and deprives us of our privileges, by which means America is obliged to defend herself by force, which in the reason and nature of things she has a right to do. Would America then be under obligation to submit to British government? Every rational person would say that Britain had forfeited her right to American dependence. There can be no more reason why we should submit to Britain after she had acted the part of a cruel enemy herself. Green argued Britain had indeed treated the colonies this way, quote, by starving and bloodshed, so that they would reduce the colonies to an entire submission, end quote. Britain had, quote, acted directly contrary to all her obligations to protect and defend, end quote. The colonies and most unjustly pronounced them, uh, to defend the, the colonies and most unjustly pronounced them rebels. So because of these things, Green asserted that the Americans had righteously and properly taken up arms in their own self-defense, and Britain had forfeited her right to American dependence. So it was Pastor Jacob Green, Presbyterian pastor in Morristown, New Jersey. Third, Andrew Elliott. Like the Edwardses, Elliott was a Congregationalist minister in Boston, one whom his son described as a moderate Calvinist who held the Westminster Shorter Catechism in high esteem. So much so, he sought to inculcate it among the youth of his congregation. In a sermon he preached in 1765, he asserted duties leaders have to their people and duties the people have to their leaders. In the same message, he conveyed that at times political resistance is justified and legitimate. According to Eliot, Romans 13 teaches obedience to one's rulers is necessary, but not absolutely. Eliot says this, Some have argued the doctrine of passive obedience and non-resistance in all cases whatsoever, or that we are not to oppose those who are in authority, 
although they evidently act contrary to the design of their institution and are bent to ruin the society, which it is their duty to defend and promote. A doctrine so big with absurdity that one would think no one of common understanding could embrace it. Certainly he must have the temper of a slave that can practice upon it. St. Paul very plainly teaches us how far subjection is due to civil magistrates when he gives it as a reason for this subjection, quote, for he is the minister of God to thee for your good, end quote. The end for which God has placed men in authority is that they may promote the public happiness. When they improve their power to contrary purposes, when they endeavor to subvert the constitution and to enslave a free people, they are no longer the ministers of God. They do not act by his authority. If we are obliged to be subject, it is only for wrath and not for conscience sake. And they who support such rulers betray their country and deserve the misery they bring on themselves. Now, Eliot takes this even farther. He says, where men are grossly of a contrary character and pervert their power to tyrannical purposes, submission, if it can be avoided, is so far from the being a duty that it is a crime. So Elliot is saying it is an offense to submit to leaders of, quote, contrary character, end quote, or who, quote, pervert their power to tyrannical purposes. Now, these are strong words, very strong words. But he didn't say these things flippantly. Within the context of calling for this and pointing this out, he writes this, I am sensible it is difficult to state this point with precision, to determine where submission ends and resistance may lawfully take place, so as not to leave room for men of bad minds unreasonably to oppose government and to destroy the peace of society. Most certainly people ought to bear much before they engage in any attempts against those who are in authority. So this is what I find. This is what I find very interesting. Uh, all of these pastors, and this will be something I mentioned at the end, they are very temperate in their thinking. Um, they didn't go after this hard. They didn't. There was a passion, but they did not lose control. They were very deliberate. Fourth, a pastor by the name of Jason Haven, Congregationalist minister in Bedham, Massachusetts. He rejected political absolutism and understood Romans 13, to have some limitations. Quote, so far as he pursues the end for which God placed him in office, he is to be obeyed. He writes this, when a ruler uses his authority for purposes just the reverse of those for which it was delegated to him, when he evidently encroaches on the natural and constitutional rights of the subject, when he tramples on those laws which were made at once to limit his power, and defend the people, in such cases they are not obliged to obey him. They are guilty of impiety against God and of injustice to themselves and the community of which they are members if they do. So Haven is taking this just a little bit further, and he's saying to be complicit with um, authority that ventures outside its own bounds, to be complicit with that, is to be guilty of impiety. Fifth, and I'll finish with this and I'll give some reflections, Caleb Evans. He was one of the most ardent defenders of the right of resistance. He was uh, the Orthodox Calvinist um, 
uh, Orthodox Calvinist minister, minister of Baptist Church in Bristol. He made significant statements defending the right of resistance in his November 5th sermon in 1775. Um, in this sermon, Evans praised the British Constitution as being the most perfect system of government ever devised for, quote, the preservation of natural liberty as far as ever it can be to consist be made to consist with that good order and regularly, which it is, which is the very end of government itself. While the design of the British government was for the people's good, any government that ceased to operate for the good of the people might be lawfully resisted. He contended. He said it might be, it might indeed be very rationally argued from Romans 13, that as all government is the ordinance of God for good, therefore when it ceases to be for good, ceases to answer the end for which it was appointed, it may be lawfully resisted. This is one thing that um, Stanley Porter has has pointed out. Uh, Stanley Porter is a, a New Testament scholar, modern day, in a journal article that I quoted from when we were looking at, uh, I don't remember what sermon it was, but Paul's use of the word good, I think is important to understand in looking at Romans 13. And I think Caleb Evans is right. Uh, let me read that again. He says, it might indeed be very rationally argued from Romans 13 that as all government is the ordinance of God for good, therefore when it ceases to be for good, ceases to answer the end for which it was appointed, it may be lawfully resisted. Or we might very naturally reason thus, as the origin of all power under God is indisputably from the people, consequently, whenever the supreme law, the salus populi, the safety and happiness of the people, is fundamentally violated, the people have an undoubted right to resume the power into their own hands. So for Evans, again, people are not only obligated to submit to a government that has at least the implicit consent of the people and answers the end for which God designed uh, God designed government in the first place. So they're obligated to submit to, to government. Um, but with that submission comes a I- I- implicit responsibility to um, make sure that the government that they're submitting to is operating according to the way God has designed government in the first place, according to Romans 13. Gary Stewart, I'll, I'll conclude with talking about the book with, with this, and I'll finish with some personal reflections. Stewart writes this, The American clergy played an important role in shaping the public mind and provoking the response to the British that became the American Revolution. They repeatedly urged American colonists to resist their British authorities in the 1760s and 1770s, and they justified such resistance by appeals to the Bible. They did not need to develop innovative interpretations of Scripture nor did they derive their insights under the spell of secular notions of freedom and liberty. They instead relied upon a long tradition of Protestant biblical interpretation and Protestant resistance thought in justifying resistance. In addition to this, they had numerous examples of prior resistance and precedents to draw on from their own British Protestant history. Well before American colonists began to openly resist their British authorities in the 1760s, they widely believed that active resistance to civil authorities was something justified. They viewed it, in fact, as at times moral duty. So in, in reading through his book, obviously that is just scratching the surface. It's a, it's a pretty lengthy treatment of the topic. Uh, but in reading through his book, there were three, three reflections that I had. 
And I'll finish with this. Number one, conclusions surrounding political resistance were not reached flippantly. Conclusions surrounding political resistance from these clergy, these conclusions made by the clergy were not reached flippantly. These clergymen were serious thinkers. And I have found, it seems that they were very devoted, at least the five that I looked at, devoted students of scripture. They did not operate on emotion. They made no knee-jerk decisions. At times when they arrived at the conclusion of political resistance, it almost feels reluctant on their part. So they ought to be appreciated, I think, for the seriousness with which they came to their conclusions. They did not reach them flippantly. Second, Romans 13 was pondered deeply. The notion that clergymen of the Revolutionary War period were more Lockean philosophers than biblical exegetes doesn't seem right in light of the evidence, at least for the survey of pastors that Stuart presents. Perhaps that was true of some, that, that other clergymen were more Lockean philosophers than we were biblical exegetes, but in scouring the sermon manuscripts of these five explicitly, I just don't see how they were somehow co-opted into their views concerning political resistance. I don't I doubt there has been a group of clergy who have thought more deeply about Romans 13 than the clergymen of this time period. I was stunned at the sheer amount of material both written and spoken generated during this time. Romans 13 was pondered very deeply, and I could say in relationship to that 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 they did um they did build on their own theological tradition. John Calvin is is talked about periodically by these clergymen. Calvin had something to say about political resistance. And so, yes, they were biblical exegetes, but they also had some understanding of their historical theology. And the third uh, impression that I had is that the constitutional authority was real and all were accountable to it. This is something that you hear time and again in their own words. There are rights given to citizens through their nation's constitution. There are also checks and balances on leaders. One isn't obligated to submit to a leader who is violating their nation's constitution. You hear this in their, in their appeals to political resistance. The leader is accountable to that constitution. There is a higher authority than the person in some particular office. The citizens of the colonies, including the ministers, appealed to this time and again. In advocating for political resistance in such cases, they even went so far as to say not to resist when leaders are in violation of, of governing for the good of the people. As Paul used the term Romans 13, citizens had an obligation not to be complicit with them through resistance. So for the clergy of the colonies, rights by constitution held higher authority than those who held that particular political office. Now, I don't, they don't say this, at least I, I didn't pick up on this, but um, I, it doesn't seem to me that they would hesitate to call out something within the Constitution that was not good, as Paul would use that word in Romans 13. So it's not just that they would call out someone in authority violating their nation's Constitution. They would call it the Constitution itself if they felt that it was written in such a way that it violated Romans 13. But it seems as though they had a high regard for their, their own constitution. It seemed as though it, it best, as, as any uh, human community can, captured what, uh, what was good for a, for a, uh, a society. And uh, they felt that 
that constitutional authority was something to be held uh, in, in commitment to it. So there you go. American clergy and the Revolutionary War <laughs> historical podcast today. Interesting points of data that I'm sure fuels our thinking for today. Again, if you want to read more, I encourage you to get this book. Again, Dr. Gary Stewart, it's in the show notes below. Justifying Revolution, the American clergy's argument for political resistance from 1750 to 1776. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.